0: is of course good, but for how much of human history have we been free? Not a lot. Today we aren't really as free as we think. But anything that has helped humans on their way to more freedom is a good invention. This episode therefore is a little different. The invention is not the Magna Carta itself but more about the legacy of Magna Carta, and how it influenced later generations. I think it can be said that Magna Carta is one of the most important documents of all time, even though it was never supposed to be. Today, Magna Carta is given all kinds of accolades for the foundations of English liberty, and some even go as far as to credit the foundations of property rights to Magna Carta. They make the further inference that this is the reason England, rather than any other European country, became the foundation of the Industrial Revolution. The Magna Carta is said to have been one of the bases of the American Constitution, and even today Magna Carta is used by many common law countries ...as one of their foundational texts of government. Lord Denning says, quote, It is the greatest constitutional document of all times. The foundation of freedom of the individual against the arbitrary authority of the despot, close With the British Empire being so huge, the legacy of Magna Carta can be seen in many of its former colonies... And with the Anglo-American domination after the Second World War in reshaping many countries across the world, elements of Magna Carta can be seen in many of these. But, as I think this episode will show, Magna Carta was something of a myth. It was turned from something it wasn't into something people wanted it and needed it to be in order to claim a historical basis for their radical ideas. Its legacy was mostly propaganda, myth, and political spin. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. So what is Magna Carta? What does it mean? Unlike David Cameron, who did PPE at Oxford and still didn't know, it is Latin for the Great Charter. And it was essentially a pact between King John and his barons, securing various rights and privileges for them. We will first look at the creation of Magna Carta and then look at the invention of the Magna Carta myth, for which the purposes of this list is the invention. Now I am not a great medievalist, far too often it is simply stories of kings and queens, royal families, church and great wars and battles, which is understandable. As before the printing press, there was not a great amount of written literature published about the lives of the ordinary person. But to fully understand the Magna Carta myth, we have to understand the background to Magna Carta. Henry II was one of England's greatest kings. He ran an empire from the borders of Scotland to the Pyrenees. He controlled almost the entire western seaboard of France. And with alliances from Saxony and Sicily, and Castile to the Holy Land, he was perhaps the most powerful man in Europe since Charlemagne. Henry was in constant need for money, mostly due to his habit of fighting King Louis Twelfth of France. This meant taxing his citizens, and especially in his most prosperous region, England. In order to tax more efficiently, he had to centralise England. He made it clear that power and authority in England came very much from the king himself. Henry basically only made one concession at his coronation. He followed the Norman king's tradition and issued a charter to quote-unquote protect all the concessions and grants and liberties and free customs. Henry didn't simply ignore all the barons, but if any of them crossed him, He had no qualms in fighting barons who challenged him. On some occasions he razed castles and expelled foreign mercenaries. Henry also made change to justice. Rather than allowing local sheriffs and local officials to administer justice, Henry changed it to 12 royal judges who travelled around to investigate cases. All murder, robbery and theft would be judged by these men. Ten years later, arson, forgery and counterfeiting was added to the list. Of course, Henry did face resistance, most famously from Thomas Becket. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, and there was a separate system for church law. Henry wanted to be able to punish churchmen who committed crimes. This, it was felt, would have been a huge invasion of secular law into ecclesiastical jurisdiction. The result was the murder of Thomas Becket at the altar of Canterbury Cathedral in 1170, turning Becket into a martyr and Canterbury into a place of pilgrimage. The strong and harsh rule of Henry alienated much of the upper classes, who resented the power of Henry, but the power and wealth he amassed meant nobody was going to challenge him. He died in 1189. Which meant the crown passed to Richard the Lionheart. Richard was his father and more, the only monarch with a statute outside the Houses of Parliament, and he pushed his father's reforms even further. But he never spent much time in England. He was either on crusade or in France, leading to the arrival of his younger brother, John, onto the scene. Richard I, or Lionheart, was a crusader. The third crusade has been called a response to the fall of Acre and Jerusalem to the great Saladin, which had been nobly defended by Orlando Bloom in Kingdom of Heaven. The third crusade galvanized princes across Europe and Richard did not want to be left behind. In order to fund the third crusade Richard sold off everything his new realm had. Ships were loaded with pig's carcasses, horseshoes, arrows and everything else you might need, and sent off to the Holy Land. A special tax, called the Saladin Tithe, had been levied across Richard's empire. £22,000 was the normal annual tax rate. In 1190, it was £31,000. Two months after his coronation, he set sail to Jerusalem, where he would be gone for four years. Richard's legacy is founded on his prowess as a military leader. By the time he left Jerusalem in 1192, Richard was known across the world, but he'd also made enemies. On his way back to Europe, he was shipwrecked and captured by Duke Leopold of Austria, who sold him to the Holy Roman Emperor. Henry VI set his price of freedom at £100,000. Despite only a few months to raise the money, the money was raised. He was released and returned to England. After a few months back in England, he went on crusade again. He would never see England again. With the various campaigning and release fees, it would be his idiot brother John who would run the country. But by now the country was broke. It probably didn't help that Robin Hood was stealing money from the state and giving it to the poor. When Richard died after taking an arrow to the shoulder in France, the rightful heir to the throne was the worst monarch England has ever had, John. Everybody hated John. There have been revisionists who have tried to rehabilitate or find the good in him. But John was cruel and unpleasant. He was a bad soldier, slippery, oily, and, perhaps the worst of all, John was just about competent and savvy enough to stay in power. Bad leaders often get removed from power far quicker than just about competent ones. When John married a 12 year old in 1200, just after taking power, everybody rushed to hate on John. Not because he was marrying a 12 year old, but because she was already betrothed to another prominent southern French family's daughter. This gave the French a reason to attack John's land. By December 1203 Normandy was back in French hands. John left for England. The year after and almost all of his continental holdings save for a coastal strip of Aquitaine was now gone. The loss of Normandy was one of the great turning points in medieval history. Many barons had lands on both sides of the channel and they were forced to choose which side they wanted to be on. Before, many saw England and Normandy as the same land. Anglo-Normans were in effect the same peoples, and there was not much difference between the Normans and the English that we might look at today. It was only by the end of the Hundred Years' War when people realised there was now a permanent separation of the two lands, that people would feel a clear separation between the English and French and it began the genuine enmity between the two peoples. One of the great facets of leaders is not winning every time, but knowing when you've lost and being able to cut your losses. George Washington lost battle after battle, but was a genius in being able to cut his losses and move away. Napoleon, who won battle after battle, for example, was not about this, and he could not accept a defeat. After devastating losses in Russia or at the Battle of Leipzig, he kept on trying to reclaim past glories that led to his downfall. John was the same. John started by following his predecessors in one of the most popular pastimes of Plantagenet kings, taxing his realm harshly. After a conflict with the Pope led the Pope to issue an interdict, meaning that it forbade all church services, effectively placing the souls of the entire country in limbo, and meaning that marriages could not be consecrated, baptisms could not take place, and the dead could not be buried with church rites, it meant that John could now confiscate all church property. John placed harsh taxes in 1207 on the population, and confiscated the lands of the Earl of Leicester, and in 1214, he forced Anglian Baron Geoffrey de Mandeville to a heavy fine for marrying his former wife. By 1212, John had achieved mastery over his kingdom. He was rich and oversaw a brutally efficient tax machine. Nobody could challenge him. So with all this untrammeled power, he decided to take back the Norman lands he lost in 1204. In the spring of 1212, the situation looked good for John. He had lots of silver in the bank, while Western European leaders were beginning to resent the French king Philippe Augustus' power. The Count of Boulogne, the Duke of Brabant and Otto of Brunswick all joined John's anti-French alliance. He was due to meet his army in Portsmouth when it all started to go wrong. His aggressive treatment of Welsh princes in 1211 led to revolts. He ordered some Welsh hostages to be hung, but it diverted his troops away from where they were needed. Then came rumours of several plots to kill him. One, deveski was a northern baron who couldn't care less about the French expeditions. France was as far away as Norway, and he would get no benefit from reclaiming French land and sending men to fight was a no-win situation for him. While another rebel, was one of the wealthiest barons in East Anglia and was simply dismayed at King John's heavy-handedness. Both men were forced to flee, but their exile did not ease England's woes, but it resulted in a delay of the invasion. By 1213 John was in trouble. The cancelling of the invasion had enabled the French to prepare. John eventually managed to get his ships into the mouth of the Zwin, a French port and he burned the French fleet there. Meanwhile, he funded a proxy war between Philip and the barons of Flanders as he prepared his own invasions. But he found the northern barons would not bow to his wishes. He tried to win them over with promises of reform, as he assembled a fleet to take an army to France. During this time, the taxes and exhortations on the barons continued. So when he finally set sail, he had to leave a garrison in the north to head off any revolts. On Sunday, the 27th of July, 1214, a coalition of John's allies met Philip's army at Bavoines. John's allies lost at Bavoines in a complete rout. Otto IV of the Holy Roman Empire managed to escape, but many counts and other high noblemen were caught. For John, this was a disaster. He had staked his fortune and much reputation on this single pitched battle, only for him to have lost completely. John lost his nerve and sailed back to England, never to return to France. Now Staines is famous for two things, the birthplace of Ali G, and the place where the Magna Carta was signed. After the debacle at Bavoines, John came back to England to enraged barons, The kingdom was on the brink of civil war. Furthermore, this civil war was a war John could not afford. He had taxed the country to the brink and was forced to pay 60,000 marks to Philip for a truce. Yet his enemies, mainly the barons of the north, expected and many wanted a fight. They came armed to a conference in London in January 1215 demanding reforms. While John had been away in France, however, there was a document known to us today as the Unknown Charter, drawn up by those remaining in England to get the king to mend his ways. Part of the charter recites the liberties granted by Henry I in 1100, and some other policies aimed at limiting the power of the king. On the 5th of May 1215, a group of barons renounced their fealty to King John. It was ten days after John had failed to appear at a conference, where he was due to reply to a set of demands, probably those of the unknown charter. By renouncing him, the barons were free to declare war on the king. After rejections and arbitration on both sides, John ordered his men to lay siege on rebel castles. A good number of barons still sided with John, However, London quickly became under rebel control. This was the key turning point. John was forced to negotiate. He was in Windsor, about half a day upstream from London, and so a conference was organised at the place the Magna Carta describes as quote, the meadow called Runnymede between Windsor and Staines. Close Nobody quite knows what happened during the negotiations of the signing of Magna Carta but it's safe to say that by the end of May 1215, Barons accepted that peace would have to be reached. For ten days after, a deal was drafted on the terms of the Unknown Charter. The negotiations at Runnymede were difficult, and John was reluctant to even sign that. By Wednesday the 10th of June, the broad terms of the Articles of the Barons had been drawn up and accepted by both sides. This was to be the formal and final creation of the treaty. On Monday the 15th of June, Magna Carta came into effect. On the 19th of June, the barons assembled to renew homage to their king. The delay between the 10th, when the articles were drawn up, to the 15th when it came into effect, and the 19th when the barons swore fealty to the king has been put down to infighting amongst the barons especially the northern barons who wanted to keep on fighting against the king, who they believed to be a tyrant and that peace was too lenient. Within six weeks the northern barons were proved right. John reneged on the deal and the war that everybody had tried to avert was back on. So what did the Magna Carta actually say? 4,000 words in all, and all in Latin, It dealt with a wealth of political, legal, judicial, ecclesiastical, economic and feudal matters. It was written in continuous prose, but over the centuries it has been subdivided into clauses and subdivisions. The start reads out with a preamble, in which John still claims his title of the Duke of Normandy and Aquitaine. It addresses his faithful subjects stating that the king's peace is only for people who submit to his rule. The first clause addresses that the English church shall be free in perpetuity. The Magna Carta is said by some to be concerned with only secular rights, but his first act is religious in nature. The next clause is about setting the price of inheriting a barony. This was set at £100 not the 10,000 marks John had been charging. The exchequer was also placed under more independence, rather than being an extension of the crown. Bailiffs were not allowed to seize any land for any debt, so long as the debtor's chattels are sufficient to pay for the debt. Scutage, the military tax, would have to be at a reasonable rate, and only after taking common counsel of the realm. This would mean, in later years, that Parliament would have to meet the King in formal meetings. London was also granted its ancient liberties, both on land and on water, and the city's merchants were granted freedom of movement. Clause 35 regulated weights and measures for the three most important things in life, corn, cloth and ale. There are a few other items I've left out, with specific gripes against the political system. But Magna Carta also addressed some grander ideas. But they were so broad in scope, they were virtually ignored at at the time. But they are what today Magna Carta is most famous for. Earls and barons were to be fined by their peers only in accordance to the nature of the offence. Judges, sheriffs and other royal officials were to be competent, and perhaps the most enduring clause of any non-religious text of all time, no man is to be arrested, or imprisoned, or deceased, or outlawed, or exiled, or in any other way ruined, nor will we go or send against him, except by the legal judgment of his peers by the law of the land. This was meant to stop John's arbitrary pursuit of his enemies. Yet Magna Carta was fudged with enough loopholes to drive your horse and cart through it. This was especially bad, as John was not a man who kept his word. John would do all he could to wriggle. While the clause we just read out, clause 39, is said to be the foundation of the Western judiciary, clause 61 is also significant. Clause 61 was meant as the check on John's power. The security clause said that any transgression against any of the Articles of Peace meant a group of 25 specially elected barons would, under the terms of the charter, distrain and distress in all possible ways by taking castles and lands. Essentially, it was a legal framework to have a civil war. However, Magna Carta made war easier and more likely, but Magna Carta did not work. It had not found the secret formula for restraining a powerful monarch. The treaty was annulled by the Pope within weeks, with John claiming the terms had been extracted upon him by duress. As an added bonus, the Pope excommunicated nine barons. There was now no other choice for them. Civil war would have to resume. The barons took the drastic, if not unprecedented, step of looking to replace the king with a Frenchman. It had happened four times since 1066, William the Conqueror, Henry I, Stephen and Henry II. This time they looked to Louis the Lion, the 27-year-old son of King Philippe Augustus of France. While northern barons invited Alexander II, King of the Scots, to invade Northumberland, Westmoreland, and Cumberland. While a Welsh prince, whose name I'm not even going to try and pronounce without spitting a load of phlegm onto this microphone, was capturing English castles. John now faced three foreign princes and most of his own aristocracy. John marched north and subdued the north, and then turned south to stop Prince Louis. Louis landed in May 1216, after an unsuccessful attempt to block the crossing by John, Louis's troops pushed John out of the south east, and the Scots rushed over the border once more. Everybody was prepared for a long attritional war, but while in Norfolk, John fell violently ill with dysentery. The sick king pushed his troops on, and he got to Lincolnshire, a little further north, where he was fed a diet of ripe peaches and cider. This didn't work. He died on the evening of the 18th of October, after being persuaded to forgive his enemies. His dying wish was that his son, Henry, should take the throne. In Shakespeare's play, King John, he was actually poisoned by a monk. His dying wish that his son would become king came true, and King Henry III was crowned on the 28th of October. With Prince Louis overrunning the south, Henry or at least Henry's advisers, needed to get back support of the barons. Magna Carta was reissued on the 12th of November 1216. The war with Louis dragged on until 1217, when, after a couple of victories and a bribe of 10,000 marks, about a quarter of royal revenues, Prince Louis went back to France. The charter was reissued again, along with the Charter of the Forest. It was in 1217, when this charter got its name Magna Carta to differentiate itself from the Charter of the Forest. In 1242, at one of the earliest recorded parliaments, Henry requested financial aid for a military expedition to France, but was refused. The charter was increasingly prominent and was written in French and English. And it was known in Normandy, where it became a model for charters of liberty there too. However, Magna Carta eventually came to be seen as dated. It was for an old time, not for modernity. And so by the 16th century, it was an antique. Not that it was unknown, though. In 1497, Henry VII used Magna Carta to prevent deceptions in weights and measures. And in 1508, a printing press was used to print off new copies. However, it wasn't like anybody paid heed to much of its ideas. The idea that the English church was free was rather ignored by Henry VIII, and even Shakespeare's play, King John, made no mention of the Magna Carta. And so, in great crises, people tried to find for historical precedences for ways out of the mess. During the English revolutions in the 1600s, Magna Carta found new relevance and thus began the start of the invention of the Magna Carta myth. The British revolutions began the process of an examination of the relations between the crown and their subjects. Charles I had been attempting to revive the feudal aspects of the monarchy. Magna Carta seemed to his opponents as the perfect example of taming an out-of-control monarch. The Great Charter was taken as an original constitution that Charles was not only betraying his people, but English history at large. So this invention of the Magna Carta myth can be put down to Sir Edward Coke. He had been convinced of the treaty's usefulness against Stuart tyranny. He told the House of Commons that Charles's abuses of royal power was a breach of the Magna Carta. Following the precedent of the Great Charter, Coke drafted the petition of right in an attempt to stop forced loans and arbitrary imprisonment. This was a conscious attempt to emulate the precedent of the Barons at Runnymede. This, more than anything, embodied Magna Carta's legacy. All the time in political discourse, we look to older traditions to reinforce our view whether it's Brexit arguments and debating what Churchill might have said on the matter, or Americans and their reverence of Lincoln, Reagan or Martin Luther King, the idea that claiming Magna Carta said something it hadn't said is simply a piece of spin, the likes of which happen in every free democracy. So, soon after the end of the revolution and the issuing of the English Bill of Rights and the glorious revolution, Magna Carta went out of fashion once again in England. However, at the time Coke was writing, the first US colonies were being established. Indeed, Coke wrote the first Virginia Charter, guaranteeing the settlers' rights as free English subjects. William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, was the first to publish the Magna Carta in the United States, and wrote a book called, quote, the excellent privilege of liberty and property, being the birthright of the free-born subjects of England. The spirit of Coke and Pen were felt through all of America's founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson wrote, quote, "A sounder Whig never wrote, nor of profounder learning in what were called English liberties." Close Lawyers were overrepresented in the U.S. founding fathers. So they placed heavy importance on legal documents. The lawyers quoted Magna Carta against the British Parliament. The Massachusetts Parliament protested taxation against representation, saying that the Stamp Act was, quote, against the Magna Carta and the natural rights of Englishmen, and therefore, according to Lord Coke, null and void. Close the American Bill of Rights, ratified in 1791 consists of ten amendments to the Constitution, and echoes Magna Carta in several places. The Fifth Amendment says that nobody should be deprived of life, liberty or property without due process, nor should private property be taken for public use without just compensation. The Magna Carta spread to Canada, New Zealand and Australia, where a copy of the 1297 edition is on display at Canberra. During Nelson Mandela's Rivonia trial in 1964, he made the ease for commitment to democratic ideals, telling the court, The Magna Carta, the Petition of Right, and the Bill of Rights, which are held in veneration by Democrats around the world. Even though Magna Carta says nothing about democracy, sometimes myth is more important than reality. It is not just the Anglosphere where the Magna Carta has had an impact. Look at the European Declaration of Human Rights, or the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, to see how closely the language of Magna Carta continues to inform our basic protections. Eleanor Roosevelt, the champion of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, described it as a quote-unquote Magna Carta for all men everywhere. Magna Carta was an English document, but the Magna Carta myth is as much an American one. American jurists still refer to it in cases, and turned it from a failure at conception into a document that would shape the course of human liberty. Originally designed to uphold feudalism, it has been used by radicals to convince the world they were always conservatives, meaning it's far easier to overturn the status quo. The name is hitched to everything under the sun. A Magna Carta for the internet, or Magna Carta for disabled people. Any and all types of people still refer to Magna Carta. So for all these reasons, the Magna Carta myth is listed at number 76 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.